The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. That's tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. The delicious ice-cold taste of Dr. Pepper has a lasting effect on people. Lindsay from Sacramento said, Pro tip, 40 degrees is the perfect temperature for an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. Why is 40 degrees the perfect temperature for Dr. Pepper? We brought in Sue from Duluth, Minnesota to tell us. Oh yeah, I know a thing or two about cold. Oh, that right there is the perfect kind of ice-cold for Dr. Pepper. Mm, I'd share that with my friend Nancy. She likes Dr. Pepper, too, you know. My cold All right, that'll be all, Sue. Having a perfect temperature for your Dr. Pepper, it's a Pepper thing. Inspired by real fan posts. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, listeners, before we get into the episode today, I wanted to ask you to do me a huge favor. I would love it if you'd go over and fill out a survey for me. It's at survey.libson.com forward slash history ghost bump. That's survey.libsyn.com forward slash history ghost bump. That's to help facilitate me getting sponsors for the show, which is going to help me keep history ghost bump on the air. Thanks so much. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to the 281st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're heading to Mississippi to the Duff Green Mansion in Vicksburg. Lots of Civil War history here, a beautiful antebellum mansion, and apparently it is quite haunted. Looking forward to bringing that to you. Also, looking forward to bringing to you at the end of the episode... I ran a Patreon campaign, if you will recall, that for people who jumped in and started giving at the $2 and above level and stayed on through October, they would be getting eulogies read by Mort. And he has a few of those he's going to start doing today. The people that we will be eulogizing on this show are the ones who bring you the show. Before we get into all of that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Carrie, Michelle with two L's, Rebecca, Kristen, Peggy, Bridget, Jonathan, Robin with a Y, 
Christine with a C-H, Jessica, Steph, Travis, Amy with an I-E, Andres, Anne with an E, Sarah, Sarah with no H, and Hannah with no H. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Kim Gasiarowski. The Parco di Mostre, or Park of Monsters, can be found in Barmazzo in northern Lazio, Italy. The park is situated in a wooded area below the Orsini Castle. This castle was once home to Prince Pierre Francesco Orsini, who lived there in the 16th century. Orsini is the designer of this bizarre and horribly beautiful park full of stone sculptures of various monsters. The sculptures are designed to shock and were an expression of his grief. He had come through a terrible season in his life. He had just survived a brutal war that had killed his best friend. He'd been held for ransom for years, and when he returned home, his beloved wife died. The prince hired architect Piero Legiorio to help him create what he called the Villa of Wonders. This would be a place of art before its time, as it demonstrates a type of surrealism. Salvador Dali loved the place when he visited. The park took 20 years to complete and was finished off with a temple built for the prince's second wife. Other designs include a house built on a tilt to disorient visitors, a war elephant, a giant tearing another giant in half, a huge fish head, and an enormous head with a wide gaping mouth locked in a scream known as the Mouth of Hell that features a small picnic table within. A novel and opera have all been based on the park. A lovely and peaceful Italian garden playing host to stone monsters? Certainly is odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. And now, this month in history. In the month of November, on the 1st, in 1776, the Mission San Juan Capistrano was founded in California. St. Junipero Serra founded the mission as the seventh of 21 missions statewide. The mission was originally intended as a self-sufficient community for Spanish padres and Native Americans and was a center for agriculture, education, and religion. Over 300,000 people visit the mission annually. But it's not just humans that visit. This is the site of the famous annual return of the swallows. Swallows migrate 6,000 miles from Goya, Argentina to San Juan Capistrano and arrive on March 19th St. Joseph's Day. This has been happening since the 1930s. The legend of why this happens goes, one day while walking through town, Father O'Sullivan saw a shopkeeper, broomstick in hand, knocking down the conically shaped mud swallow nests that were under the eaves of his shop. The birds were darting back and forth through the air, squealing over the destruction of their homes. What in the world are you doing? O'Sullivan asked. Why, these dirty birds are a nuisance and I'm getting rid of them, the shopkeeper responded. But where can they go? I don't know, and I don't care, he replied, slashing away with his pole. But they've no business here destroying my property. Father O'Sullivan then said, Come on, swallows, I'll give you shelter. Come to the mission. There's room enough there for all. The very next morning, Father O'Sullivan discovered the swallows busy building their nests outside Father Junipero Serra's church. The mission also features one-of-a-kind artifacts and paintings and has the ruins of the Great Stone Church destroyed in an earthquake in 1812. Her nickname is the American Acropolis. 
Vicksburg is one of those Civil War era cities that I long to visit because I love Annabella mansions. The Greek revival architecture and magnolia trees take me back to an earlier time with hoop skirts embellished with ribbons and elegant carriages riding in the streets. But it was also a dark time of slavery and division in the United States that would lead to the outbreak of the Civil War. Vicksburg was the scene of an intense battle that would leave over 37,000 casualties in its wake. Just prior to the outbreak of the war, Duff Green built his mansion, and the bed and breakfast still carries his name today. The mansion seems to have more than just the Green name. Spirits of the family members seem to have stayed on here in the afterlife. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of the Duff Green Mansion. Vicksburg, Mississippi is a river port that sits high on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. The United States bought the area from the Choctaw Nation in 1801. The city would become the scene of a battle that would be a major turning point in the Civil War. Confederate forces held the city under Lieutenant General John Pemberton. The Union knew that this was a strategic location that they needed because the location was on the river bluff. In the summer of 1863, Major General Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee converged on Vicksburg. They found that Pemberton's forces had built a series of trenches, forts, redans, and artillery lunettes in a seven-mile ring surrounding the city, but the Union had the advantage of outnumbering the Confederate forces two to one. Grant went forward with two assaults, but both were repelled, leading him to lay siege to the city. This led Pemberton to surrender on July 4th as food and supplies ran out. Grant's Vicksburg campaign was considered one of the most brilliant of the war, and it solidified the Union with control of the entire Mississippi River. So, Vicksburg was a major player in the war, but it suffered greatly afterwards, and racial strife would be a key part of its history. Coca-Cola was bottled for the first time in Vicksburg in 1894 by Joseph Biedenharn, who was a local confectioner. And it originated as a soda fountain drink, and that's why... Biedenharn was going to have to bottle it because his sales were so good, he thought, you know, I bet I could bottle this stuff and sell it and make a ton of money since so many people are coming in to get the soda fountain drink. So he used a common glass bottle that's called a Hutchinson. Everything went fabulous with it, so he sent a case to Asa Griggs Candler, who owned Coke. Candler thanked him, but took no action at first. He wasn't a very good entrepreneur, was he? Later on, of course, he obviously realized that bottling Coke would be a good idea, and the rest is history, as they say. Today, Vicksburg is a grand city that focuses on tourism. People come from all around to see the Annabella mansions, and one of those is the Duff Green Mansion. Duff Green was a local cotton broker that had become very wealthy. He had recently married Mary Lake and wanted to build his new wife a grand home that the neighbors would envy. Construction began in 1856. The mansion was built in the Palladian style with two large verandas that featured wrought iron embellishments. There were 13 fireplaces, several bedrooms, and a large ballroom. 
lavish parties were thrown at the mansion and both Jefferson Davis and Ulysses S. Grant were said to have danced in the ballroom. Things were wonderful until the Civil War broke out. The siege of Vicksburg that I described earlier brought the battle right to the home of the Greens. Five cannonballs blasted through the upper floors before Mary was able to hoist a yellow flag, indicating that the mansion could be used as a hospital. Both Confederate and Union casualties were brought to the mansion. The Union took the top floor and the Confederate forces took the main floor. The kitchen became the operating room and so much blood flowed onto the floor that the wood is still bloodstained to this day. Several other rooms were used for operating as well, so there are bloodstains throughout the mansion. The Greens needed a place to stay during this time, and they took cover in caves that they had built into the hill outside their home. Mary was pregnant at the time and actually had to give birth to their son in the cave. So much for their lavish lifestyle. She must be thinking, look at how far we've fallen. I'm giving birth in a cave. She named him William Siege Green. I'm not sure what happened with the Greens between the time the siege ended and when they returned to their home in 1866. There was about a two and a half year period there, but the mansion itself was leased by the U.S. government to be used as a soldier's home. So while they were gone for that two and a half years, soldiers recuperated at their house. The Greens stayed in the home until 1880 when Duff passed away. They had a daughter named Annie who died in the home when she was six. So we have two family members who've died here. Mary decided to sell the house and she did so to the Petros family. This would begin a time of ownership switching hands and different uses for the house. The Petros family stayed in the house until 1910 and they sold it to Fanny Vick Johnston. She used the mansion as a temporary residence while her mansion was being built. That home is known today as Stained Glass Manor. She moved out and allowed the home to be used as an orphanage for boys. For a time, it also became a home for elderly destitute women. In 1931, Johnston's heirs sold the property to the Salvation Army and they used it for 50 years. In 1985, the mansion was sold to Harry Sharp and his wife. The Sharps brought the Duff Green Mansion back to its former glory as they transformed it into a bed and breakfast. The process took two and a half years, but it is gorgeous inside with polished wood floors, gorgeous chandeliers, and walls covered in historic paint that is very vibrant, very pretty. 27 layers of paint had to be removed for them to get down to the base to add the wall paint that they have on there now. And I don't know this for sure, but I know with most of these old mansions, when they take off the paint like that, what they're trying to do is get to the first color that was there so that they can match it up. So I'm assuming that's what they've done. When they were doing the restoration, they worked a lot with a historical society and with the government to make sure that everything looked as it had been in its heyday. The mansion is filled with period antique furnishings. Obviously, nothing is original to the house, but these are antiques that would have been used at the time. And it offers several rooms for guests that include the Dixie Room, the Camellia Room, the Confederate Room, the Magnolia Room, Little Annie Room, the Pemberton Suite, the Duff Green Suite, the Nursery, and Lucy's Cave, which is an apartment that is located under the driveway off the courtyard. And that courtyard is made out of all brick, and there is a pool there as well. Something the bed and breakfast does not keep a secret is that it also hosts ghosts. So when you go on their website, they will tell you that they have ghosts at this place. The owner, Henry Sharp, himself has seen ghosts. He told the Vicksburg Post, I've seen the ghost of Mary Green floating in the entrance of the doorway, plain as day. The cook has also seen the apparition of Mary and describes her as a beautiful woman with flowing blonde hair. She told a local television station, I was standing there over the stove stirring my grits 
and I felt this rubbing on my shoulders. I thought someone had walked in behind me, teasing me or something like that. But I looked back, and there wasn't anyone there. Then I knew it was Mrs. Green. This apparition has been seen most of the time wearing a green antebellum dress. The cook also came in one morning and heard music coming from the ballroom. When she looked inside, she saw a ghostly couple swirling about the floor. She believes that it was the Greens. A female spirit has been seen looking out a window in the dining room who could also be Mary Green. And of course, Mary Green didn't die in this home, so I'm not sure if she's returned to it because she loved it so much. Little Annie, who died in the house when she was six, still seems to be here. Her apparition is seen and heard running up and down the staircase, and the sounds of a child playing with a ball have also been heard. The owner of the mansion, Mr. Sharp, had a -a one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter named Lydia. She was in the ballroom with him one time, and she kept glancing over at a corner in the room, and she was saying, Gaga ball, Gaga ball, Gaga ball. Mr. Sharp said, Gaga was Lydia's word for baby. Did she see little Annie in the corner playing with a ball? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison. And me, as the This man, Prince of Darkness, and we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come to... on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet (laughs) and then a three-year-old guest kept making motions like he was throwing a ball in the ballroom and when his father asked why he kept doing that he responded that he was throwing the ball to annie this is really peculiar because we have a child seeing something that nobody else is seeing and apparently playing with a ball that nobody else can see could he see the ball was he feeling the ball Did it look like there was a ball in his hand? How does that happen? That just blows my mind. I want to know more about that. But obviously, there is no more to know. And this being a three-year-old guest, I'm sure he doesn't even recall having this experience or what happened. But I, I would love to know if he really thought that he had a ball in his hand and was really playing with it. And the other key thing we have here is not only did he see Annie, but she obviously was talking to him since he knew what her name was. The most seen spirit belongs to a Confederate soldier who lost his leg. He's seen most often by the fireplace in the Dixie Room, standing by the mantel or sitting in a chair, and he just looks straight ahead. So either doesn't like to interact with people, or it's not an intelligent haunting. A policeman captured the figure of a soldier sitting on the front steps. I'm not sure if this is a different soldier because the description that I read didn't say that there was a missing leg. So this could have been another soldier. And I don't know if it was Confederate or Union. Obviously, a ton of them died in this house. It's possible we have multiple soldiers hanging out here as apparitions. And a little side note about the amputations that took place at this house. 
one of the basement rooms is where most of these amputations took place. And there was a window through which the limbs were thrown. And it said that the stack reached five feet high. During excavations around the foundation, human bones were found that had surgical saw marks on them. I don't know if they just buried them on the premises right there or if some got left behind. I I don't know, but apparently some of the bones were still there. Guests have had other experiences like feeling the sheets being pulled off them in the Confederate room. Phantom smells have also been experienced in this room, one of which is gangrene. That's pleasant. There have been people who worked in the medical field that have said that they've smelled gangrene in other areas of the mansion as well as medical smells. The investigative group Paranormal Incorporated captured some interesting EVPs during a stay. I played a few of them. They are very hard to hear. They made the recordings during a rainstorm, and so it's just very hard to hear any kind of thing underneath. You can kind of tell that there's voices there, but since it's already hard for you guys to hear EVPs through the podcast, I knew you wouldn't hear anything that they had captured. You can differentiate that you're hearing either a male or female voice. One of them sounds like a whistle that goes yoo-hoo, almost like it's trying to get their attention. Heavy furniture is heard dragging across the floor of rooms where no one is staying. Photographic evidence has been captured featuring shadow figures. Employees claim that hardly a week goes by that they don't have something strange happen or see something out of the corner of their eyes. Some guests have even claimed to see angels and a pair of undertakers. Only two guests have ever left the mansion unable to stay because of the haunting activity, and that seems to indicate that the spirits here are not malevolent. The mansion is beautiful inside and out. Could it be that Mary Green's love for her former home has brought her spirit back? Did she come back to join her daughter Annie in the afterlife? Did the trauma of the Civil War leave the spirits of some soldiers here? Is the Duff Green Mansion haunted? That is for you to decide. Absolutely gorgeous home. I encourage you to check out their website, DuffGreenMansion.com. The breakfast that they offer is a sit-down affair, three courses, and one of the specialties is the cheesy grits that they make. So I would highly recommend staying there. I would love to stay at the Duff Green Mansion one day myself. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at HistoryGhostBump.com. And if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at HistoryGhostBump at gmail.com. I received an email from Mary who contributed one of our ghostly tales that we had on the Halloween special. And she just wanted to correct some factual errors on her part. And she is the one who stayed at the Crescent Hotel and had some experiences there. In it, she had said that the Crescent Hotel was a tuberculosis hospital. It was actually a cancer hospital. And it was ran by a doctor who claimed to have a miracle cure. It was still a very sad chapter in the history of the hotel. She said she knew it was cancer, but for some reason, tuberculosis stuck in her head. And I said, well, you know what? I did the Crescent Hotel in an earlier episode, and I didn't even catch that. No, wait, it was a cancer hotel, so we both uh, missed that. And so she just wanted to make sure that we got the facts straight on that. So thank you for pointing that out to me, Mary. And then I also heard from Rosie, and she had posted, and I also heard from Rosie. She said, I hope you had a fantastic Halloween. I really enjoyed the episode you did last week on Hitchhiking Ghosts. And the story about the covered bridge and the prisoner struck a real chord with me. I come from a city in West Yorkshire called Wakefield, and we've had our own ghost story attached to one of our bridges. Chantry Bridge over the River Calder was built between 1342 and 1356. It has the Chapel of St. Mary in the center of it built over the river, which sounds absolutely gorgeous. The Battle of Wakefield was fought about a mile to the south, 
and Edmund, Duke of Rutland, son of the Duke of York, yes, that Duke of York, was killed on the bridge, age 17, as he ran away from the battlefield. This is just a bit of irrelevant historical background because it's interesting, but he's not the ghost I want to tell you about. There's an old coaching inn what was once a village, but is now a suburb called Sandal. It is called The Three Houses, and it's still operating as a pub to this day. During the 18th century, a highwayman who was arrested there has quite the escape story. He jumped off the cart he was on as it was crossing the bridge and into the river. He was never seen again, and a body was never found. Harry Houdini became obsessed with this story and went to the bridge periodically to attempt to contact the spirit of the highwayman, as he believed it was one of the greatest escapes of all time. He was unsuccessful, but local legend has it that you can hear hoofbeats on the bridge early in the morning on the anniversary of the jump. I find it fascinating how similar these stories are despite being separated by time and distance. It just goes to show that humans are humans, and I guess that ghosts are ghosts. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Rosie. I appreciate it. As I announced on the Halloween special, I have launched a brand new podcast called The Death Box Podcast, and you can find it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I encourage you guys, if you like what I'm doing here, you'll probably like the material I'm doing over on The Death Box as well. Please subscribe, and if you get an opportunity to, review the show. I would absolutely appreciate that. Also, for those of you who are executive producers, I put up a bonus cast featuring Astoria, Oregon. They've got some good hauntings going on there, several locations. And I put up a video of the old jail in St. Augustine, Florida, which has some haunts of its own. I have a review to share from Apple Podcasts. This is Tucker at the Black Crypt Podcast. Keep up the good work. Five stars. Amazing array of topics with everyday experts. Gives inspiration to the rest of us. Keep it spooky. Thank you so much for leaving that review, Tucker. And if you guys haven't checked out the Black Crypt Podcast, I think you might enjoy it if you're into horror. It's really good. I want to thank you all for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. And stick around for a bit so you can hear Mort's eulogies. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. I want to thank Melissa Potter for raising her donation. You will be getting moved into a garden crypt. Thank you to Rick Kennett for your one-time donation. Greatly appreciated. And we want to welcome into the cemetery Anna Cross, who will be getting a marble tombstone. Sue Holden and Ashley Dyer, who will both be getting chess tombs. Trisha McCool, you're going to be getting a very cool mausoleum. And the Minds of Madness podcast will also be getting buried here in the cemetery with a marble headstone. If you guys aren't listening to the Minds of Madness podcast and you're into true crime, you absolutely must listen. And I did join them on their most recent episode that's about demon possession and did the devil make someone kill somebody else? It's a very good episode. Eulogies by Mort. Kristen Sandell lived on the East Coast, and she enjoyed tales about a ghost. She had a big heart and cared for the sick. Now I better put her in the ground rather quick. Dave and Anne student gave us our host. That gave them something about which to boast. Pa student loved fishing, and Ma student loved history. As to where I buried them, that is a mystery. Tammy Burroughs enjoyed teaching and a good brew. 
Groot was her sidekick and she liked spending time with the crew. Hitting lots of cemeteries was one of her aims. But most of all, she loved a good Highlands games. Tracy Duhon lived in Tennessee. She always smiled with glee. She liked Ghostbusters and a Christmas story. On her tombstone, I put a memento mori. Ruth Schulte loved riding horses and tales about supernatural forces. She lived in a Mexico that was new and would wander a cemetery or two. Anifreus worked in a museum that was haunted. She created cool crafts that I really wanted. She liked a good scary story and was a big fan of Edward Gorey. Rachel Zajaskowski had a tough name. When she married Tyler, it wasn't the same. She lived in a Carolina to the south, which is much easier for me to say with my mouth. show subscribe to the show on itunes stitcher or your favorite podcast catcher we would greatly appreciate your review at itunes as well to help the show grow thank you credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 